In Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which is where we're at in our exposition of Luke, we come to the message and ministry of John the Baptist. The message and ministry of John the Baptist. All throughout church history, the gospel has been under attack. Satan has always had uh, the gospels in his crosshairs. He's always had his sights fixed on the gospel because he knows that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. And he knows if he can corrupt the gospel or distort the gospel or remove the gospel, he can, in fact, remove the means by which God saves sinners. Sometimes Satan attacks the gospel in very overt and easily to understand ways. Uh, you know, he raises up uh, false uh, occult religions, uh, Satan worshiping religions, witchcraft. Uh, others a little less subtle, uh, pseudo-Christian religions, religions that claim to believe in the Bible, but who reject uh, different aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ who teach that you can gain salvation by your works rather than by faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And though his deceptive devices are very numerous, uh, uh, they're kind of like the cars in the freeway during a rush hour, uh, some of the more subtle deceptions that he propagates are are not in the the pseudo-christian churches or in the occult of the world but are in bible believing churches around the world churches that teach that jesus is the only way churches that teach the bible is true that you must believe the gospel message and here is where the subtlety lies because these churches are teaching you have to believe in Jesus, which is true, and that you have to believe he died and buried and was raised again on the third day, which is true. But they kind of just stop there, implying that the gospel message is merely a gospel of mental assent to a certain bit of information. Well, it is true that the gospel needs to be understood. It is true that it is uh, an understanding of certain bits of information. But that's not all the gospel is. Sometimes when you're baking either a cake or maybe a loaf of bread, there's a, there's a little ingredient in there that you need to make sure you keep in there. Otherwise, things don't turn out right. If you're baking bread and you leave out the yeast and you bake a loaf of bread, you get a flour brick. Some of you ladies may have been at times uh, cooking a cake, you're busy doing things, and you forget that little tiny teaspoon of baking powder or baking soda. And then you produce chocolate soup rather than cake. And you would think that, well, it's only an, a, a minuscule part. It's only, it's only one ingredient. But I'm telling you, it makes a radical difference in the outcome, doesn't it? Well, in many churches today, the gospel has something missing in it. Something that is very necessary. And just like you can't bake a cake without baking powder or baking soda, so you can't preach the gospel without this particular ingredient 
Because what you get is eternal damnation if you leave it out. In many churches, the gospel has been reduced to, you need to ask Jesus in your heart. The Bible never says that we need to go and preach, telling people to ask Jesus in their heart. Some people say, well, you need to come forward at an altar call. The Bible doesn't say that either. Or you need to pray this canned sinner's prayer. The Bible doesn't say that either. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say almost all of what the church is saying today concerning the gospel. And this is scary. It's scary because we have replaced what the scriptures clearly teach as the gospel with cliches, jargon. You know, it's kind of like, you know, would you like a piece of candy? Would you like Jesus? Well, that candy tastes good. I'll take him. I'll try him out. But there is something the Bible says everyone must do if they are going to be saved. And do you know what that is? It is something modeled by John the Baptist, by Jesus, and by the apostles in the early church. Do you know what it is? It's that people should repent. And you know, when you say that, you think, well, well, yeah. But strangely, this vital message, this message of repentance is almost absent from every single gospel track you can pick up. Go to the Christian bookstore, grab the gospel tracks, open them up and read them and see if you can find anything about repentance there. It's gone. This bothers me. This bothers me. If you think I'm worked up, just wait. (laughs) You go and you... Look at different, you know, gospel training programs. Repentance, not mentioned. You go to most churches and, you know, raise your hand if you want to be a believer. Come forward if you want to be saved. Pray the sinner's prayer. Ask Jesus in your heart. And God, by his grace, has saved many people. When these truncated forms of the gospel have been presented but in many cases people think they are saved but aren't and that's where the danger lies because once you think you're saved when you aren't you quit looking to be saved you just then begin to have a lifelong struggle because you can't overcome your sin you can't seem to to walk with the lord you don't know what's wrong you don't love god's people you don't love god's word you don't love god but you know you're a christian at least you think you are, and your whole life is a big religious frustration. So this morning from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we are going to look at the message and ministry of John the Baptist, whose primary message and ministry was calling sinners to repentance in preparation for the Messiah's coming. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and follow along as I read. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, from this text, I want to point out to you two important things God calls you to do. And guess what the first one is? The first is God calls you to preach repentance. Look at Luke 3, 1 and 2. He gives this big introduction. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar and goes down through all these people. And you ask yourself, why? Why does he mention Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Philip and Lysanias and Caiaphas and Annas? Why does he mention seven people, nine if you count John and Zacharias, in six different public positions that they held? Because Luke is concerned about the time. He's a detail guy. We're going to find this out if we haven't found it out already. He is very concerned about the details. And so he's laying this out saying this is the time that John's ministry started. The problem is we still don't know what time this is. And the reason we don't know what time this is is because we aren't sure when Tiberius actually started his rule. So when it says in the 15th year of Tiberius... The reign of Tiberius Caesar, we don't know when Luke was referring to that. We do know that Caesar Augustus did not have an heir, and so he wanted he wanted Tiberius to be his heir. So he adopted him as a son, and then what he did is he said, Well, I already told the Senate that they can appoint their own Caesar, but I want you to be Caesar, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you be co-regent with me. So you can kind of get your foot in the door, get established in power, and then when I die, you can take over. That happened. The co-regency started in August of A.D. 25. And then later on, Caesar Augustus died in A.D. 28. Um, Tiberius became ruler. We don't know uh, when exactly Luke is saying this took place. Whenever that took place, whatever those years were that brought this about, this 15 year of Tiberius, um, uh, is when John the Baptist came on the scene. So between AD 25 and 26, or between AD 28 and 29, which would be 15 years into Tiberius's reign, either as co-regent or as sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And that's when John came on the scene. And it was during this time, the text says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Here we first learned that the word of God came to him. And why? Well, we have already learned that he was the the prophet to come. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness. He was the one that was predicted who would come to uh, change the fathers, the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the children, the fathers, and to restore people and to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. The angel told this to Zacharias when he was in the temple, right before he had his session of being deaf and mute. Now, Secondly, the text says that not only did the word of the Lord come to John since he was a prophet, he received direct revelation from God. Secondly, we're told John was in the wilderness. And we know from Luke chapter one, verse 80, that after he was born, Zacharias and Elizabeth moved into the desert and there they raised him. We don't know why, maybe to isolate him from worldliness. We don't know. Anyways, they moved there and that's where John was raised, and that's where John received the word of the Lord to start his ministry. Now look at verse 3 of Luke 3. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here again, we see the area John was ministering, which was the district around the Jordan. 
The Jordan is of a large river which runs through the Jordan Rift connecting Galilee to the Dead Sea. And why would John be ministering there? Well, because John was preaching a baptism, the text says, of repentance. Why would he need to be near the river? Because John practiced baptism by immersion. You need lots of water if you're going to stick people under the water. If you're going to sprinkle them, you can do that anywhere. John 3.23 tells us that John was baptizing in this area because there was much water. A very strong argument for baptism by immersion. That's why one of the reasons why we practice that. And what did John preach? He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But what's that mean? And that's kind of a strange phrase, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It almost sounds like John is saying that, or Luke is saying that John is preaching that men need to be baptized so that they can have their sins forgiven. But of course, we know that's not how you get your sins forgiven. Uh, That doesn't work. There are many scriptures which we won't even bother going into that. Uh, Secondly, you might think, well, maybe he's not saying that John preached that people uh, should be baptized so they can receive forgiveness. Maybe he's saying they just need to be baptized as a precursor for repentance and that repentance would bring them Uh, forgiveness of sins no that's not what luke is saying either what luke is saying is that john preached that people should be baptized as an outward act an outward manifestation of an inward heart of repentance that is they were to repent of their sins and be baptized to show people that they were in sin and now they're turning from their sin You remember the book of Jonah when uh, Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites. What happened? He walked through the town. He said, in three days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Repent or judgment is coming. And what did they do? They all repented. And then what did they do? They all wore sackcloth and ashes. Why? Because they wanted to show outwardly their inward heart repentance. And then they had a big fast. Same type of thing. John came preaching that people should repent and to make their repentance public by being baptized with water in water. Now, sometimes we think that baptism is kind of a church thing, a Christianity thing, and it's new to the New Testament church, maybe from Pentecost onwards, but not so. Baptism was being practiced even before John came on baptizing. What happened was, is it was a common practice for Jews at that time, if uh, uh, a Gentile wanted to become a Jewish proselyte to come and then say, you know, I want to give my life uh, to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I want to turn from my idolatry, my paganism, and now I want to follow the one true God. And they would say, "Okay, that's great. So you need to be baptized. Why? Because it would symbolize their being washed and cleansed from their pagan idolatrous lifestyle and then resurrected to a newness of obedience to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So John the Baptist comes along and he preaches repentance and he calls people to be baptized too. But what's interesting is this. The Jews who came to John were already Jews. 
So the question is, why was John preaching a baptism of repentance if they were already Jewish? And the answer is this, because by the time John came on the scene, the nation of Israel had fallen into deep apostasy. They were offering hypocritical worship. They were living in dead orthodoxy and had wicked lifestyles. So John is not calling them to repent from paganism, quote, to Judaism, but from false Judaism to real Judaism. That is to start really from the heart, living for the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what John came to do. And he said, and I want you to stand up in public. I want you to get baptized and admit that you've been living in rebellion against God. And show everybody who's watching that you are now turning your back on your wicked lifestyle to follow the Lord and prepare for the Messiah's coming. That's what he did. And repentance always requires two things. First, it requires a change of mind. Second, it requires a change of direction. The word repentance really means to turn about, to change about, to repent, to return. Repentance first happens in the mind. You realize you're in sin. You realize you're in rebellion against God. You realize that God's judgment should rightly fall upon you. And you realize your way is wrong. And then you say, you know, I need to change my life. And then it happens in the outward part in how you live. There is always a change of mind that results in a change of direction in how you live. Before coming to Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we all lived in the lust of our flesh and the lust of our mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And Paul says, and we all lived this way. We all walked in the lust of our flesh and we all walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Every single one of us unknowingly being deceived. We're all marching in Satan's army and we didn't know it. We were all held captive to do his will and we didn't know it. We were blind. We were lost. But when God, by his grace, comes into your life, when he grants you repentance leading to salvation, you are convicted of your sin. You realize you're walking away from God. You stop. You make an about face to follow Jesus. That's what repentance is. And that's what John came preaching. Probably one of the clearer texts on this is Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. We've looked at this before. Isaiah, while preaching repentance to the apostate nation of Israel, said this in verse 6 of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he, that is God, will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah says, listen, if you are going to have God's forgiveness, you need to do something. You need to turn from your wicked ways. That's the outside part. You need to turn from your unrighteous thoughts. That's the inward part. And you need to do an about face internally and externally and turn to the Lord. And then you will have compassion from God. And then you will be abundantly pardoned 
And that is the same message we need to preach today. People need to repent. But amazingly, some teach that repentance is not even necessary. Some teach that it's not even a part of the gospel message. We don't need to tell people to repent. It's not even part of anything we need to be doing as missionaries. As people living in the world for Jesus Christ, they teach it's an intrusion into the gospel of grace and it adds works to salvation. And I'm not talking about some obscure people out there. I'm talking about some big theological guns. For instance, Lewis Sperry Chafer, who is now dead, but has written a very excellent systematic theology. One of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary said, quote, repentance is erroneously added to the one requirement of faith and belief. Charles Ryrie in his study Bible says repentance is a false addition to faith in the gospel. Michael Kokoros, a well-known Bible teacher, said repentance does not mean to turn from sin nor to change in one's or nor to have a change in one's conduct, end quote. Some have tried to deny that repentance requires any change of life. All you need to do It just say you believe in the facts that Jesus died on the cross, buried, rose again on the third day. You're saved. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't have to be a change of life. You don't have to be show anybody that you're a new creature. All you have to do is say you believe you're in. You've got fire insurance, period. Has nothing to do with outward behavior. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking to yourself, Jack, You know, why are you all worked up about this? I really get worked up about this whenever, whenever, when I, when I, when people starts messing with the gospel, when people start teaching incomplete gospels, false gospels or distorted gospels, I get worked up. The big deal is this people who don't repent, don't go to heaven. They go to hell, period. And don't let anybody tell you any different. If you have been here very long, you have sat out there and you have listened. I mean, some of you have been up there and described how you thought you were a Christian and you prayed the prayer or you raised the hand or you grew up in the Christian family and and went to church and you thought you were saved and you thought that you were right with the Lord. I mean, you, 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 people told you you were saved. You, know, you believed your mom. You believed your pastor or whatever. But there was never a change of life. In your heart, you knew you didn't love God. You didn't love God's people. You didn't love God's word. You didn't want to obey him. You secretly rebelled. You had a dual lifestyle. And then finally, when the grace of God came into your life and you realized you would never turn from your sin, you were trying to live for two masters, Satan and God, which you can't do. It's really just learning, living for Satan. You then repented. And then what happened to your life? It radically changed. Because that's when salvation occurred, when you repent and believe the gospel message. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? They follow me. Jesus's sheep follow him. Well, if you are following Satan, you are not following Jesus. If Satan, Satan is walking in the opposite direction of Jesus. And if Jesus says, listen, you hear my voice and you follow me, you have to stop, turn 
and go that way. It requires it. It necessitates it. You can't say, well, you know, I'm saved. I'm just living like the devil. No, no, that doesn't work. Harry H. Harry Ironside said this in his work, Except Ye Repent, which is a great title. Quote, shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible fact of men's sinfulness and guilt, calling upon all men everywhere to repent, results in shallow conversions. And so we have myriads of glib-tongued professors today who give no evidence or regeneration whatever, prating about salvation by grace. They manifest no grace in their lives, loudly declaring they are justified by faith alone. They fail to remember that faith without works is dead. And that justification by works before men is not to be ignored as though it were in contradiction to justification by faith before God, end quote. And he wrote that in 1939. And things have gotten a lot worse since then. But the real authority on whether or not repentance is necessary is God, not Henry Ironside. So let's see what God says. I want to look at three things from the scripture. And if you think this is a rabid, rapid fire, it's pretty rabid too. Um, treatment it is. First, is repentance necessary part of the gospel message we are commanded to preach or not? We need to figure that out from the scriptures. Secondly, does repentance make works a means of salvation? We need to look at that from the scriptures. Thirdly, is repentance merely a mental change of mind from unbelief to belief? Or does it actually have to affect the way we live externally? That is, do we have to start obeying the word of God? So let's ask and answer the first question. Is repentance a necessary part of the gospel message? Well, we see John the Baptist preaching repentance here in our text, right? Matthew 3, 2 also says John's ministry consisted of preaching repentance. So from the life of John, we could say, well, John preached it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus was tempted, this is right after his temptation, right at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. This is what Matthew says. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, you need to ask Jesus in your heart. You need to raise your hand. You need to pray the sinner's prayer. Not on your life. From that time on, Jesus said, began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus's message. As a matter of fact, this is the first recorded words of Jesus. The first recorded words of John the Baptist, repent. The first recorded words of Jesus, once he starts his ministry, repent. When he sends out the apostles, he tells them to preach repentance. We're going to see that in a minute. An example of this can be found in Matthew 11, 20 and 21, where we see Jesus condemned the cities who witnessed most of his miracles. And he condemned them because they did not repent. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now what is the gospel of God? And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn over to Luke chapter 5. Let's see just some of the key verses in Luke here. Look at Luke 5, 31. Here Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are enraged at him because he's spending time with sinners. Imagine that. And notice that what Jesus says in verse 31. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not called, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. People, we need to reexamine how we are sharing the gospel with the lost. And if we look at our gospel presentations and we find out we've left off repentance, we've left out the baking soda of the gospel. Turn to Luke 13, Luke chapter 13, verse one. Jesus speaking to the crowds here. And look at verse one. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. We don't know the details here, but apparently what happened is, is there were some Jews, like some Jewish zealots who were fighting against Rome. Uh, Pilate sent them out to be executed. They were in the temple offering up sacrifices. The guards came in and slayed them right in the middle of their offering. And Jesus said, verse two, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? See, the Jews had in their mind that if you suffered like this, you you must be a sinner. I mean, you must be a really bad sinner. Otherwise, God wouldn't let this happen to you. Look what Jesus says. Verse three, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse four, or do you suppose that those 18 in whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in jerusalem there was a big tower it fell down and killed 18 people the jews thought oh these people must not have been right with god they are they probably were in rebellion therefore god knocked over the tower on them and killed them what's jesus answer verse five i tell you no they were not worse culprits but unless you repent you will all likewise perish two things are crystal clear in this passage and that is this All men are sinners deserving of God's judgment. And two, all men need to repent or they will all perish eternally. Turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 7. At the end of the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 7 of Luke 15. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then at the end of the parable of the lost coin, look at verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then if you look at the the parable of the prodigal son, what does he do? He wanders away, he stops, and he what? Repents. And the whole purpose that Jesus has in telling these things is, listen, if you don't have repentance, you can't get saved. He uses repentance as a synonym for salvation here. The angels aren't rejoicing because someone was saved. They're rejoicing because somebody repented. Jesus preached that all men must repent. The apostles preached the same thing. Not only do we see the first words in John's ministry as repent and the first words in Jesus' ministry as repent. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, Mark records that when Jesus sent the 12 apostles out for the first time, they went out and preached that men should repent. You got it. You're catching on. Some object, though, and they say things like, but, but Jack, wait a second now. This is, this is the Old Testament era. You know, Jesus hadn't died here. This is still you know, pre-cross theology. 
Well, let me remind you that the way of salvation between the Old Testament and the New Testament has never changed. Everyone who has ever been saved has always been saved by faith through grace and the promise of God. And also let me remind you that the apostles were sent out in the early church to preach and teach what Jesus taught and preached and Jesus taught and preached that men should repent. And if they don't, they will perish. But as one would expect, we do have post-cross teachings of repentance. Turn to Luke 24. Here, Jesus is speaking to some disciples after he's died, after he's buried, after he's raised again. Verse 46 and 47 of Luke 24. Jesus is speaking to them. This is what he tells them to do. And he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead. The third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. What is it? That repentance would be preached to all the nations. The Apostle Paul in Acts. Now you you say, well, the church wasn't born then. Okay, we'll go to Acts. The church has now started. It's well underway. The latter chapters of the book of Acts, Acts 17, Paul is preaching to a bunch of Greeks in Athens. He says to them in Acts 17, verse 30, these words, therefore, Acts 17, 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all People everywhere should repent. That's what God says. Everyone needs to repent. Paul summarizes his ministry. If you look at Acts 20, 21, he's meeting with the Ephesian elders. He's kind of summarizing what his ministry was all about. And this is what he says in verse 21, that he went about Solomon testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I loved it when I was in Russia because I didn't have to deal with this at all. You go to Russia, you come to salvation, you must repent. It's like, that's right. During one of the services, a young lady came up there and repented in front of everybody. I made a public statement. I am going to turn from my sins to follow Jesus. None of this. Well, you know, I don't want to have to change my lifestyle. I mean, you know, I want Jesus as Savior, but I don't want him to be lord of my life i don't want him telling me what to do i'll be my own person bottom line the bible unequivocally teaches that repentance is a necessary part of the gospel message and we must preach repentance because god is now right now commanding all people everywhere to repent and that's what it means to go share the gospel you tell people who jesus is what he did you call them to repentance to turn from their wicked thoughts and their wicked ways and to turn to follow Jesus Christ. The second question is this doesn't repentance make uh, salvation uh, uh, by works. I mean, doesn't it make it, uh, you know, repentance a, a means of, of gaining salvation and kind of a salvation by works thing. I mean, after all, if we have to repent, then it seems that, It's kind of saying salvation is by grace plus works. Well, it would be true if repentance was something that men did in their flesh. 
apart from God. But if it could be shown that repentance was actually something that believers did because of God's grace, then we could say, oh, it's an act of God in a person which leads them to an outward change of behavior. So let's see what the scriptures say. Acts 5.31. The scriptures say in Acts 5.31, Peter is speaking before the council of Jewish leaders. And he says of Jesus, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Who granted repentance to people? God. So is it a work of man? No, it is a work of God's grace in men. If you turned over to Acts 11, verse 18, Peter and his companions rejoiced when the Gentiles repented and were saved. And Acts 11:18 says, God has also granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Who did it? God did. God grants repentance. If you were to look at Romans 2, 4, Paul says it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And kindness is an expression of God's grace. In 2 Timothy 2, 25, Paul tells Timothy to gently correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So what do these verses tell us? They tell us that repentance is given to us by God and his grace. It comes from God. It is part of God's grace. Men receive the ability to repent, and that is why repentance is not adding salvation or works to salvation. Repentance is one of the first manifestations of saving grace in a person's life. It is not salvation by works. It is salvation by grace unto works. Thirdly, is repentance a turning away from sin or merely a mental change of mind from unbelief to belief? Well, John told the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 8, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, have a change of life. We're going to learn more about this in our text, but we aren't going to look there now. In Acts 2, 38, guess what Peter does? He's preaching to the Jews. He preaches the gospel. And he tells them to repent and then to be publicly baptized so that everybody knows you are now rejecting the way of Judaism and following the way of Christianity. Do an outward act of your inward heart repentance. In Acts 3.19, Peter tells the Jews to repent and return to the Lord. From what? From sin. To what? To obedience to following the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 26, 20, at the very end of the book of Acts, when Paul described his ministry to King Agrippa, he said that he kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with repentance. Acts 26, 20. Paul speaking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 21 said, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not 
repented of their impurity, immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. And we could go into a huge list of verses about this. There's a slug of them. The fact is this. If you don't repent and your repentance isn't a turning away from sin, it's not saving repentance. And if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. That's what the scriptures teach. Jesus and the apostles all taught this. It's crystal clear. And I've tried to make that clear just by looking at a few of the verses. So what are we supposed to do about this? Guess what? Repent. That's the application. If you haven't repented, you need to repent. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Luke 3. Here's a text, and we've looked at this text at two other occasions, so we aren't going to go into it in any detail. But this is the text of the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine be filled. Every mountain hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough road smooth. It's quoting Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, which talks about the forerunner of the Messiah to come. And John is not saying, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved, get on the county road crew. What happened is in that day, though, is that when kings came into town, they made the roads nice, filled in all the potholes, smoothed them all out. So when the king came, he had a nice, pleasant journey into town. It was a way to prepare for the king. Well, Isaiah uses this imagery, the same imagery, prepare to receive Jesus Christ. How? Repent. Turn from your wicked way and your unrighteous thoughts. Get rid of all those things in your life that are causing you to live in rebellion against God. Turn from it, humble yourself, repent, confess your sins, and then you will be ready to receive Jesus. Of course, Jesus came on the scene right after John. And that's what he's talking about in verse 6 of Isaiah and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That is just exactly what happened. Jesus came on the scene after the preaching of John and all flesh saw the salvation of God. But for the most part, Jesus was rejected. But the message of repentance still remains because if people are ever going to know the Lord, if they're ever going to see the Lord, they need to repent. So if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, If you haven't turned from your wicked way and your unrighteous thoughts, as Isaiah says. Then you need to do that today, because unless you repent, the scriptures say you will likewise perish. And if you have repented and your life proves it. If you see God changing you from the inside out. Then you need to go about preaching repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what you need to do. Just get away from the cliches. Listen, I don't know about you. I've never preached and had 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 people come to the Lord. But Peter did and Paul did. And they didn't say, ask Jesus in your heart. They said what? Repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. He died, buried and rose again and he's coming back again is the motivation for repentance today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for John's message and his ministry, and we look forward to looking at more of it in the days to come. Father, I just pray that if there's anyone here who realizes they have never repented of their sins and never really made a commitment to turn from their unrighteous thoughts and their wicked ways to follow Jesus, 
even though they maybe have come to church and even though they maybe have made a mental uh, ascent to the facts of who Jesus is and what he did. And even though they may profess to be believers, I pray right now you would grant them the repentance leading to salvation. Father, right now in their heart, they would make a commitment to turn from their wicked way and receive you and be saved and be transformed and become your children so they will not perish. Father, the rest of us, as we leave here today, may we make a commitment to share the gospel as it is modeled in the Bible. The gospel that Jesus is Lord, that he came to earth, lived a perfect life, died in the cross, shed his blood to make atonement for sinners that he was buried and rose again on the third day conquering death so that those who place their faith in him and only in him might have the gift of eternal life father if there's anybody here who hasn't done that may you your grace overshadow them so that they might repent and for the rest of us may we go forth and boldly preach repentance to the lost because this is what we see your scriptures telling us to do and pray this in christ's name amen